0: Amen. I like that the worship team doesn't leave. They all pray and then leave. I like that. It's a little thanks. Um, Also, I wanted to thank all the downtown folks. we got some downtown folks in here. The Easter play just wasn't going to cut it for y'all, was it? (laughs) Wasn't going to cut it. Um, Well, I'm glad to see y'all. It means you're hungry for the Word. And in spite of uh, my frailty and my flesh, uh, you will hear the word. Um, It's also got some faces. We had some people that invited. My boy Danes here from Bread and Butter. Um, We got uh, we got some familiar faces here as well. So I'm glad uh, people will make it out out of the rain into the church here to worship this morning. If I said the word worship, just Just the word. What's the first thing that comes into your head? Okay. Man, I like that. You you come down and say, you say things. I like that. It's interactive with Josh. I like that. Um, If, just think in your head, or out loud, like Josh, you can. Um, What do you say, what do you you think when you think of that word? Worship. Um, Because we're going to talk about that. The word is not mentioned in our text. But worship is all over this passage. So if you want to turn to John chapter 3, verses 22 through 36. John chapter 3, verses 22 through 36. Before we begin, um, I'm living in a new home now. And I was almost brought to tears uh, Monday night. Most, a lot of stuff was still in boxes, um, thanks to Ken Wynn's small group. Um, a lot of it was not. And just the small group coming over and just deacons and just everybody helping me. And I'm sitting in, I'm laying in bed and um, I just almost cried just because I was, I mean, there was a vaulted ceiling. Our, our, our bedroom is just a, it's... The ceiling goes up, and it's—I don't know what the word is for it. Just—it was nice. (laughs) It was good. Um, It was real pretty. Um, And um, I just never, in my wildest dreams, ever thought I'd have a a house this nice. I never did. And you could see my house and think, "Oh, it just looks like a standard house in Covington." I just never thought I'd have a house that nice. Never did. And um, it's got a fan, I mean, one that kind of troops down, and I'm at a loss to articulate exactly what I'm seeing here. (laughs) But I just thought, I am so unworthy to have this. I I really did. Never thought, much less at 32 years old, I would have a house like that. And um, I was just almost crying. The first... I mean, I really, I mean this. The scripture, Romans 2, 4, His kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. That just kept coming over in my mind. And in that moment, I worshipped God. Jesus died so that I could worship God in that moment. And then... Week went on, and uh, I prayed for someone who's close to me, who just came to faith, and I prayed many times through the course of this week that the seed that God planted in their heart would fall upon good soil, would not be choked out. by the the deceitfulness of riches, that it would not be cast upon the path and be plucked. I just prayed that. And in that moment, because the veil is torn, because Jesus sent His Spirit, I worshiped God in that moment. And then a couple days go by, and I'm I'm just plucking pieces here. It's not like I, you know... I read the Jesus Storybook Bible to my two kids before they went to bed. <laughs> it was funny. Uh, I had those moments. I went, I said, Sissy, what's this? She goes, Bible? And I went, whoa! And I went, who's that? Jesus? And I went, whoa! And then Bubba comes up and goes, yo, because anytime you get recognition, it's both of them. You know, he's like, Jesus? You know, and I went, wow! And then Sissy didn't like that and she goes, shh. <laughs> Went from glory to depravity right there. (laughs) And um, had a little devotional there with my kids. And because of the blood of Jesus, I worshiped God in that moment. And I did all that before I came in here. Because the veil is torn, these walls have no bearing on whether I worship or not. Um, Today you'll hear much about giving glory to God. I want to stick to the text, but I I want to draw out some truths. When we think of glory, there's another big word. We think of brilliance. We think of God's radiance. We think of His power. We think of His splendor. When we worship, we give glory to God. When you hear the word worship, you should also think of the word glory. When we sit down for dinner, we give glory to God. When we pray, we give glory to God. We read this morning, just just um, about 20 minutes ago, 1 Corinthians 10.31. So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all the glory of God. So in everything we do, whether it's making coffee in the morning, or um, whether you're sitting down with your kids, whether you put them to bed, whether you're going to work... You're supposed to glorify God. That's what we're commanded to do. In my experience in the church, uh, the two most common generic Sunday school answers are Jesus and glorify God. That's one. Like when I was a youth pastor, those those two pretty much passed the test every time. They didn't know. They're like Jesus. Yeah. You give glory to God. Yeah, that's right. Here's my question this morning. In the most basic sense. How do I glorify God? Isn't that a big question? So that's the one I want to seek to answer this morning. How do you glorify God? And I think, and I'm pretty sure, in fact I know, John the Baptist gives us a blueprint here when he's talking to his disciples. If praising God is a daily thing, if it's the most ultimate thing that we do, what does giving glory to God actually entail? Can we articulate something that ultimate? I think that we can. If I ask somebody, hey, how do you glorify God? They'd be like, hey man, I go out in nature. I go fishing. I go hunting. When I look at the mountains, when Daniel gets to Montana, hopefully with the house, he's going to go, whoa! If I asked a mother, it might be like, when I look at my kids... Growing up before my eyes, I glorify God. People give glory to God in a number of different ways, for a number of different reasons, but there has to be a common denominator. What does it mean to give glory to God? Well, this morning I want to draw out this truth. We give glory to God in two primary ways. By making much of His grace, and by making much of His greatness. And both of these are found supremely in Jesus. Okay? So if you want to turn your Bibles to John chapter 3, verses 22 through 36, if you want to stand for the reading of God's Word. If you're new, um, we don't do this because we think that the Bible is like some magical book and we salute it. That's not what we do. We're just doing this to show how much reverence we have for the Word of God. We're not worshiping the Bible. Out of reverence for God's Word, the Word is the foundation of our worship. So here's what the Holy Spirit says. After this, Jesus and His disciples went into the Judean countryside, and He remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given him all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son is eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Let's pray. Father, give us ears to hear. Open our eyes and show us what it means when John says that you must increase and we must decrease. Amen. All right. So there was a time when John's ministry and Jesus' ministry were overlapping. If you notice, he put that little parenthesis in there because John wants us to know when this was happening. This is before John was put into prison. A lot of scholars believe that that means that John was aware of the other synoptic Gospels and the way that they placed John's ministry. And John wants us to know there was a time when they were both baptizing John and Jesus. And what we're seeing here in this passage is that John's disciples are concerned... I think would be the appropriate word, that Jesus is beginning to draw people away from John. There's a little bit of jealousy there, I think. And John takes a moment to remind them that they're ultimately called to glorify Him and not themselves. He's reminding them that they're called to fulfill a larger purpose than to gather people into their circle. The goal was not to gather as many people as they could. The goal was to point people to Jesus and that's precisely what's happening. John cannot exceed the calling he's received from God. And that's what he's reminding his disciples there. He can't com- they can't compare their ministry to anyone else's. They're doing what they're supposed to do. John is uniquely fulfilling Old Testament prophecy that only John can. John, I just love John. He's so simple. He just does what he was told. I was at a meeting the other day with some other pastors and I was listening to a pastor talk about his mega church. I mean, he was, he was humble about it. I mean, he wouldn't brag or anything. He was a nice guy. And my flesh was like, man, that'd be really cool. And his church is just a really cool church. Um, maybe not a perfect church, obviously. Um, But my flesh, just for a second, was he was talking about a thing they did at their church that I don't think we can do yet. And I was like, oh man, that'd be really cool. But I had forgotten precisely what John's disciples had forgotten, and that is that God is far less concerned with our quota and our production than He is about fulfilling the specific calling He's placed on your life. God has not called Abbie Todd, thank goodness, to be a megachurch pastor. He called Abbie Todd to shepherd the flock at Haynes Creek. The woman who's been called to parent one child can be just as faithful to the Lord as the woman called to parent seven. The blue-collar factory worker who's been called to manual labor can glorify God just as much as the six-figure lawyer. The lowly church planner can be just as faithful to the Lord as the megachurch pastor. The kingdom of God isn't about quotas, it's about calling. John's disciples are pointing to the numbers, John's pointing to Jesus. And it really is still that simple. Like we said, John's role in salvation history is unique, but we can imitate John. You can, you can kind of hear a little bit of the embellishment. Just read verse 26. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness? Look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. If I were John, I'd be like, "Um, that's the point. <laughs> I was talking to someone this weekend and they were telling me, last weekend actually, um, Mike Harris was there, I think. Um, and someone was telling me a story about a couple people wasn't representative of downtown but a couple people at the downtown campus when they heard that they were going to be losing people from their Sunday school to come here their reaction was why are all these people leaving our Sunday school we got we to gotta stick to our community here And I think those people had the exact same mindset that John's disciples do here. They were missing the bigger picture. The person telling the story here is John, and what John wants us to know is the point is not to pad your numbers, it's to follow after Christ. Look at verse 27. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. In other words, everything we have is from God anyway. This isn't us versus Him. Everything is from Him, through Him, and to Him. We give glory to God by making much of His grace. A person who sits in awe of God's grace is a person who knows how to praise God. John's disciples had forgotten why they were baptizing people in the first place. They thought they were glorifying God by adding to their numbers, but what John's saying is, whoa, 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 whoa. There can't be glory without grace. A person who thinks, listen to this, a person who thinks they have truly earned everything they have in this life has no clue how to glorify God. John says, a person cannot receive even one thing. Even one. That means the job you have is from God. That means the kids you have are from God. That means the family you have and the paycheck you bring home to them are both from God. Think about this. Because of the sovereignty of God, even the things you earn, you don't earn. John says, even one thing. God's grace isn't just seen at Jesus on Calvary. God's grace is seen in the fact that you woke up this morning. And you breathed air. And somehow, I think I learned this in chemistry, but I guess I forgot. Two oxygen atoms came together and made breathable air. I think that's how it works. (laughs) There's more nitrogen in the air than oxygen, but uh, (laughs) after that, it's like... (laughs) Gave glory to God and moved on. Okay, um... (laughs) We give glory to God by making much of His grace. And the more we grow, the more mature we are, the more we develop in our faith, the more of God's grace we see. Which is why someone who gives credit to God for only some things is still a child in faith. I went out to eat with a guy one time and he prayed this. He he prayed this. Thank you God for making... I had to write it down. Thank you, God, for making me tired because it reminds me that I won't find true rest until I meet you in heaven. He said that. The dude found grace in being tired. That's maturity. He found grace in everything. I mean, we moved in this week, as I said. And I could have, I could have taken two mindsets when we moved in. I could have, On one hand, I could have thought, okay, I've been in ministry about five years You know, got a couple degrees, been working hard. Wife just took a job. We've got kids. Uh, This is about where we should be. You know, cookie cutter. This is the American dream. You know, so and so there, they've got that house. I think I'm doing right about where they are. We're we're good. We're in our lane. Or I could have said, God gave me the house. God gave me the job. God gave me the pay. God gave me the small group to come over here. God gave me the people to know how to fix things because I sure sure as heck don't. I saw God's provision that night and today. Giving glory to God isn't just saying, well, God gave me the talents and gave me the, the, the ability, but I had to do the rest. That's not glorifying God. That's part of it. But John says, even one thing. Yes, Abby worked hard. God worked even harder. We give Glory to God by making much of His grace. That means, men, please don't go to bed tonight without thanking God for every single thing you have. Parents, don't go to bed tonight without thanking God for your children. Can you see now if we have a lens of seeing God's grace and everything we have, we're more apt to give it away and not to hold on to it? You see how that works? That's why churches that love and treasure the gospel more tend to plant more churches and send out missionaries instead of building up their own numbers? Can you see why wealthy Christians who love and treasure and prize Christ even more tend to give more of their money away? Can you see how parents who love the Gospel more tend to preach the Gospel to their children more instead of making their children worship idols? When we adopted... I think I might have shared this with y'all before. Um, we had to decide if we were going to have an open adoption. Meaning, this doesn't generally uh, is not an issue with international adoptions because of usually the parents are not there. But we know Roman Ruby's birth mama. And we had to make the decision of whether we want a closed adoption. We don't know her. We don't let her know where we are. We don't let them, you know. Or a semi-open, which is basically we talk to her. And at first, I said, closed. (laughs) Nope. As soon as I saw where they were from, as soon as I saw where the mama lived, nope. I'm protecting them, which is not a bad thing, I don't think. And then God reminded me that Not one thing I have is without being given from Him. Not those two things that I have. They're from Him. And if they are from Him, then now, because I can see God's grace and see that He's freely given me Roman and Ruby, now we have an open adoption because one day I hope that they take the gospel to her. Do you see how that that mindset changes once I understand grace? I think John understood grace really well. I mean, he had to, or that, or he was just nuts eating locusts and honey. He knew what he needed. And you understand grace. Number two, we glorify God by making much of His greatness. Verses 28-30. through You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent out before Him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears Him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. So John is essentially describing his role as the best man. His joy is my joy. There's no rivalry here. I'm here for Him. There could be no situation where Jesus is lifted up and John is jealous. What John's saying is, the church is not my bride. It's Jesus' bride. We have no right to take away from the supremacy of Jesus in this church every prayer, every song, every conversation, every reading of Scripture, every sermon, every cup of coffee, must be pointing to the bridegroom. May our church never do one thing, no committee, no meeting, no purchase without how does this lift up and increase the glory of the bridegroom? At Haynes Creek, we have to increase the name of Jesus. But in order to do that, we gotta decrease, and I'm really convinced that's the hard part of Christianity. Everybody say, Glory to God! Everybody knows that. You've got to give glory. Even unbelievers know you've got to give glory to God. It's the decreasing that's hard. And so and to illustrate that, I'm now going to quote, of course, Charles Spurgeon. This is what Spurgeon says. Let us learn a lesson of humility in our Savior. Let us never court great titles nor proud degrees. What are they, after all, but beggarly distinctions whereby one worm is known from another? He that hath the most of them is a worm still, and is in nature no greater than his fellow worms. If Jesus called himself the Son of Man, when he had far greater names, let us learn to humble ourselves unto men of lowly estate, knowing that he who humbles himself shall in due time be exalted. We're worms. Can you decrease more than a worm? I don't think so. You know, there are probably a lot of people out there who are like, I, don't, I, don't, I know what he's saying there, but I just, I don't, I don't like calling people worms. <coughs> it, it, there might be some, like, indignifying them. You know, people, are, people, people got more value and worth than a worm. I'll be. Okay, I get that. But I don't think Spurgeon is saying people don't have dignity. What he means is that, like worms, we have absolutely no right, no claim, no privilege to glory, and compared to God, in His excellence, in His brilliance, His magnificence, we are worms. I think that's what he's saying. From a salvation standpoint, from a what Abby deserves standpoint, Abby is a worm. I'm a worshiping worm. I'm going to make that into a t-shirt. <laughs> if, and I would go so far as to say this: if we exist to glorify God and to make sure that He increases and that we decrease, I can think of no better place for me to start than embracing my wormhood. <laughs> and I, I mean, and I joke there. Why am I spending so much time? It's so dang hard for someone to have a low view of themselves. It's fleshly. This is why we need the Spirit of God. He must increase, but we must decrease. That means not asking for credit every time you do something. That means not publishing every good deed you do, Facebookers, please. That means not repaying people's bad deeds with your own, because after all, we're worms. Number three, we make much of God's grace and His greatness by looking to Jesus. You... By design, God wanted us to see His grace and His greatness supremely in Jesus. That means God wanted you to see His power even more than seeing it in a mountain in the the cross. I should see the power of God when I look at the resurrection and Jesus conquering death, when I look at that, I should be in awe of His glory even more than looking up at Stone Mountain. I should see glory there, because of course, looking at Stone Mountain can make me sit in awe, can't save me. Let's read verses 31 through36. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. You see how he's just lifting Jesus up. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. Stop there for a second. That means that when you read the Bible... There there is no way to glorify God without believing that Holy Scripture is right and true. Let's, Let's continue. Verse 34. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God. For he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given Him all things into His hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. You remember last week we talked about, it said, what 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 did Jesus say? He says, He's condemned already. Well, here you go again. The wrath of God remains on Him. Judgment is a far off thing or a tomorrow thing. It's a future thing. It's also a right now thing. Judgment has begun. I think it's cool that in verse 27, John the Baptist said that a person cannot receive one thing unless it is from God. Basically, in verse 27, John the Baptist says that a person can receive only what has been given him from heaven. But then in verse 35, Jesus says that the Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. In other words, we are but measly beggars and worms who are scrapping for the tiniest morsels at the plate and the table of God. But Jesus, Scripture says, receives the Spirit without measure. In Jesus, God the Father has put the full extent of His greatness, His power, and His holiness. This is why those who receive Jesus receive God the Father, and those who reject Jesus reject God the Father. To look upon Jesus is to see the fullness of the Father. There's no such thing as a Christian who glorifies God but doesn't glorify Jesus. That's why when I'm, as a pastor, when I'm talking to new believers or someone who's been a believer for about a year, you know, they'll talk about God a lot, but I'm always trying to make sure Jesus is in there because I know you can claim to glorify God, but unless you're glorifying Jesus, you don't know who God is. You can glorify God. You can't glorify God by simply looking up at His creation and going, wow. You can't glorify God by simply thanking Him for your food and your children and your job. Praising God begins with praising Jesus. Because now, think about it, for you have an unbeliever and a believer, both looking at Stone Mountain. The unbeliever's like, whoa! Look at that. I don't know about the God thing. I'm assuming somebody had to make it, and it's he's probably really powerful. And then you got the believer going, yeah, ditto. And imagine that God becoming a servant and dying on a cross. You just ant worship up a thousand. That's where worship begins. Christians understand that the Creator of the universe took on flesh, which is why John begins the Gospel with, Word became flesh. Worship of Jesus begins. Worship of God begins with worshiping Jesus. When we look at Jesus dying on the cross, we see the fullness of God's love. When we see Jesus raising from the dead, we see the fullness of His power. The life of Jesus is the life of God without measure. I wanted to end by looking at Acts chapter 12. I'm just going to read this. I don't think I gave Quinn the text on this. Sorry, Quinn. Acts chapter 12, verse 20 to 23. I might squeeze an Acts text in there for our downtown folks. Here's what it said. This is is one of those out there stories. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain. They asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration or a a speech to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of a god and not of a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Now, in case you are wondering, I didn't pick that text because he was eaten by worms. That was a good theme, though. God God will not give His glory to another church. He takes His glory very seriously. And when you read that, you go, man, why did he get so angry? It's because Herod was increasing himself. And there will be a judgment for every single person who walks on this earth and thinks that everything they earned came from them. There will be a judgment for every single person who lives this life, increasing their own stock and negating the grace of God. There is a judgment for those like Herod who live to make nothing of the grace of God in increasing their own greatness. There is a judgment to be fallen upon those people. And then you have Jesus. God in flesh who comes and He decreases Himself. He empties Himself. He lives as a servant. He sits with tax collectors. People actually want to pick him up and make him king, and he says, no! i got a mission, and it's to die. How can we increase ourselves in light of this man? How can we claim him as king and not decrease and call ourselves lowly worms? That's Christianity! Constantly increasing a God of glory and constantly decreasing ourselves. i picked that text because it's just so striking. God strikes him down. He says, you're not going to take worship. I alone am worthy of worship. Do you live your life will you go to work or wherever you go on Mondays on an an everyday Thursday morning? Are you increasing or are you decreasing? This morning I wanted you to think about this. When you're at work, do you ever give thought to the work of Christ on the cross? When you're with your children, do you ever give thought to the work of Christ on the cross? When you're camping and you look out at God's beauty, do you ever then give thought to a resurrected king? If the answer is no, it's safe to say you are not glorifying God in everything you do. You know, glorifying God by making much of His grace and making much of His greatness. Another way of saying that is we glorify God for who He is and what He's done. And who He is is the King of Kings. And what He did is shed His own blood for us in Christ so that we might be saved from hell. Your belief in the good news of Jesus is the only way you can begin to worship God and give Him glory on this earth. So we don't just come to to church and think and talk and sing about the cross. The cross is a daily reality that you incorporate into the most mundane of tasks Monday through Friday. That is His will. And so, I invite you this morning, if anyone is living their life secretly increasing themselves, the first step to decreasing yourself and increasing the God of the universe is by submitting to the authority of Christ and believing in a God who shed His own blood for you. Come forth and believe the Gospel. Let's pray. Father God, flesh cannot inherit the kingdom of God and it is only by the spirit that we cry Abba Father Father your son Jesus came and lived a life without measure and then he took your wrath without measure Father, let that gospel humble us and humble us to the ground so that we can be beggars just asking for the scraps of Your grace. You are so good and You are so great. Father, let the love of Jesus humble every single one of us this morning. And all these things we ask in Your Son's name. Amen.